Greetings, all. This episode is a co-production of the Blank the Podcast Network, as the book we're discussing crosses over all the World of Darkness game lines. If you're unfamiliar with Mage and Werewolf in particular, we recommend checking out our sister podcasts, links to which can be found in the show notes. And now, on with the episode. This is Changeling the Podcast. Welcome, everyone, to the Old World of Darkness podcast group of people who like to podcast about World of Darkness things. We are a conglomerate of people not associated with Pentex or any other organization that generates capital, because clearly that's not a terrible thing. I am Josh Heath, and I am joined by several individuals to discuss an amazing book called The Midnight Circus. But who are these other amazing amazing individuals? They are... You said amazing, so I'm going to go next. Hi, Mage fans. This is Terry Robinson with Mage the Podcast. This is Changeling the Podcast. I can't do the theme music. There's also like there's, there's like crickets at the end of the theme Yeah, the music, crickets so are yeah. the part that always sure, gets me. Sure. Yeah. Pook, that was Puka, I guess. Oh, yeah. So, <laughs> I thought you were going to do your part with yeah. Welcome to oh, Sorry, this is Changeling the Podcast. Come for the glamour, stay for the vibes. I'm your host, Josh, and with us is your hosts... Puka and the other ones who already said hi. Yes. Greetings. We didn't plan out a very good intro to this, so no. we're just kind of winging we're it. We're fixing it in post. Mm-hmm. Mm, yeah. Fantastic. <laughs> so we all yeah. know as Wait. podcasters, that's the way to do yeah. it. So it's Josh Heath's one editing, or is that a... Terry? Oh, Terry wow. That is said he He's making edit. himself yeah. more work. So we're going to talk about The Midnight Circus. This is a World of Darkness source book that was written in 1996. The interesting thing for me about when The Midnight Circus came out is it really does capture everything about the World of Darkness up to that point and seems to, in some ways, capture ideas and themes that were coming in later books in a way that I was really I've always been impressed by. This is one of my favorite World of Darkness books, so I'm going to say that. I usually go through the credits. I want to note that I don't know who Rustin Quaid is, and I know Christopher Howard did a few other books, but I just looked at the the author list for this and was like, "Mm, I don't really know the work of these two folks too well. Chris Howard, at least, is very notable in Changeling. He's done several very dense, idea-rich Changeling books. Was this before he did any of those, though? No, so... Nobles the Shining Host is referenced uh, in this one, and I think that okay. had come out just before. So it's very yeah. early changeling. That makes sense. And there's some other, what they refer, they call grunt work in material from Satoros Brucato, Cynthia Summers, Rich Dansky, and Laura Norton. And I imagine it was, hey, let's ask the mage, Wraith, and Cynthia. I don't know what Cynthia's focus was, but let's ask the focus people what their focus was in making sure we get these things right. I think Cynthia worked on Garal. I could be wrong. So we're going to take this book from the top and go through it. So someone has the... Sherry Gets a Tattoo is the opening piece of fiction. And as a Mage fan, where traditionally we get 300 words from Kathy Ryan that starts and made race and we never know where it goes. That is an excerpt from a 2000 word piece that Kathy Ryan got. It was weird to have a story with a beginning middle and end. What occurs is Sherry and some friends are working 
at a carnival. They are joined by a, a fellow with some caprine qualities, I would say. And one day his original circus comes to get him back. And what ensues is a festival of nightmares as bad thing after bad thing after bad thing happens. Goat Boy is retrieved, a very well-dressed man with the sartorial choices of a traditional ringleader comes to reclaim him. There are dead clowns, there are menacing mimes, a person with many, many eyes, more supernaturals in one spot than I think have ever existed in any of my World of Darkness games combined. But then again, I run games where it's like, ah, yes, this is a mage-dense area. There are three. The overwhelming feeling I got from this is, one, stay in school, kids. Two, it made me painfully aware that anyone under the age of 30, I consider not a fully formed person yet. <laughs> so it's like, oh, you're a pod being. You still have more growing to do. Are you, are you talking about the writers or the characters here? I think it was the one informing the other where it's like 25-year-olds writing about 17-year-olds. Yeah. So it was just like, you, you should wear a coat, Sherry. <laughs> You, you should not be out there. But for more detail or more insight, Pook, what did you think? I liked it, I will admit. Curiously, you're talking about from a mage perspective. There's actually very little in the way of mages in this because it's primarily werewolf and changeling themed. But I do like how with the beginning, middle, and end of the story, it is ultimately from the point of view of a human. And I think that in this kind of grand crossover book like that where you have all these different colliding supernaturals, it's good to have that sort of cipher for the reader who's stumbling into the world and then stumbles back out of it, all that kind of stuff. I think it's good for showing the horror of the circus because some, you know, unfortunate things happen to a lot of people in here. It's that showing rather than telling in terms of the various kinds of evil and the various kinds of entrapment that they they deal in. And the coda at the end leaves it open for more. And we do see Sherry later in the book. Yeah. My one note though, is that carnival ride inspection is something that the U.S. generally actually has on lockdown. It's a multi-day course. You can get a introductory, intermediate, or advanced level of accreditation. It's generally done at the state level and most of them are, are, are pretty rigorous. So that's, that's my one note. So you should have some confidence unless your local carnival ride safety inspector is on the take, in which case when we cover World of Darkness Mafia, we can talk about that. Yeah. I have to say, I'm assuming that anyone the Midnight Circus interacts with is either enthralled by someone and or on the take. From. That would be great if that were the one thing they couldn't penetrate. We're just <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The, the True Faith 7. You might get murdered when you get off it, but you know the ride <laughs> yeah, itself, the ride itself is fine. The Delta World is, is entirely sanitary. No one's ever gotten hepatitis from it. When we go into that, it actually says all the rides are pretty much safe. Yeah. There's yeah. only a couple that are not safe, so maybe they do have a good inspection system. This is pretty standard World of Darkness introduction, but it gets into actually nails down pretty well the themes of this book, I think. Briefly describing what the Midnight Circus was, how it was originally meant to protect humanity and has been extremely corrupted against that by infernal forces, when infernal forces was kind of vague in the world of darkness. Um, it's got themes of illusion and lies and masks and layers within layers. It'd be more effective for a fully crossover group, you know, like one from each game line, one player character, but it also can be dealing with just one game line would work too. I find that interesting. It's 
focusing so much on being effective in dealing with the Midnight Circus as opposed to just exploring it. But yeah, the moods are discovery, recovery, and conflict, and the whole supposed to be for storytellers' eyes only for the most part. There's a little bit that would be you'd show to your players, but it's one of those like keep secret from your players. And then we have a whole bunch of media references here. Ray Bradbury has something we could this with this way comes both movie and book, other things like Freak, Killer Clowns from Outer Space, Sandman series, Last Unicorn. I'm a little bit confused how that fits in. A bunch of musical references, including things like Cirque du Soleil. I wouldn't call that even music. I think you should go see Cirque du Soleil. That might help you with this book. This is where Puka and I both learned about the Changelings yeah. as a band. Oh, that was so weird. So the changelings are listed as one of the musical inspirations here and i did some digging into them they were based in atlanta from 1995 to 2002 which corresponds to the original run of changeling the dreaming and i have not really been able to find any concrete information of where they've been or what they've been doing for the last 20 years but you've confirmed that the members were not in fact writers for changing the dreaming i have confirmed that and they've been in other bands and stuff so like i've looked on discogs i've seen their credits in different places but yeah as a band like there's videos from their shows on youtube people have uploaded the albums interestingly some of the albums were uploaded like three days ago before this recording <laughs> so it's just it's all a little bit too serendipitous so what i'm what i'm hearing is band did not exist last week and it's been retro causality i think they're i think this is like the resurgence like the act of yeah. going through this book has brought them back out of the dreaming this continues yeah. the trend of whenever Joshua and I are on a podcast, one of us saying retro causality. So yeah. I'm pleased by that. Yes. Like, Take a drink. <laughs> and the funny thing about it is I don't remember the changelings being referenced when I've read this book before until reading it this time. I don't know if that's a thing. It's just Yeah, I don't think I it was there last week. That's yeah. Or at least it, a few it weeks ago. Now appears. It now exists. We are Mandela affected. The only note I have in the introduction to add is my favorite piece of art is on page 17, which shows a evil clown and a bat and a bunch of other figures. And I just love everything about this piece of art for telling me a story. This piece of art is a banality trigger for me because of the no trespassing sign. There was a no trespassing sign. And this is a piece of Mike Cheney art. And it makes no sense because the N and the T are lined up. The O stops at the letter P or what would probably be the letter A. And it is left aligned. So this would require somebody, <laughs> somebody using the world's largest typewriter to bang out a left aligned, inconsistently sized, no trespassing sign. It just, I find it unsettling. I do like the bats, though, going into the, the main well, page. Well, uh, well, it's unsettling, just like the Midnight Circus. Exactly, exactly. But it's not... <laughs> I, I think it is right intentionally kind. unsettling, Terry. But I think that doesn't... was an intentional choice. I just wanted to mention, I guess in, in a lot of fantasy settings, there's this trope of like, you know, you have this originally good kind of group or person or whatever and in the act of binding and containing a cosmically evil thing slowly becoming corrupted by it the longer you try to hold on it until you yourself become the evil thing so there's elements of that which combined with the other sort of mundane historical ways that people have perceived circuses carnivals the people who work at them it's interesting to me how it's this liminal space this dangerous sort of like mm -hmm. operating outside of polite society space and by hitching that to the idea of like 
I think it's the defiler worm we find out later. It's kind of the apotheosis of those ideas. In changeling terms, I would almost go so far as to say it's one of those fundamental nightmares that underlies human consciousness mm -hmm. of that us versus them. It's almost like this toxic dream. Yeah. And that's what it kind of represents. Appropriately amusing for the world of darkness of a like circus slash carnival being this fundamentally cosmic important thing yeah yeah precisely you could argue with one of the most defining things about the world of darkness being the world of darkness as opposed to the carnival must always exist yeah that and with the theme of illusion all i can think about is arrested development and illusion chapter one is entitled the history of the circus and i saw that this chapter was largely epistolary so i was concerned so i did what i always do when i'm not sure I did some etymology. <laughs> circus usually refers to the tent containing the main ring. Circus simply means circle and refers to the first open circles that were used to show performances. And then later the open ring in a large tent through which light would come through a la an oculus. Carnival, on the other hand, refers to some sort of civic or religious celebration and has kind of transformed into its modern incarnation with the midway and such. Carnival may come from carnevale, meaning to remove the meat or to offer or to feast. We're not quite sure. A fair, on the other hand, is much larger and is generally an exhibition with the intent of showing skill in the U.S., usually at the county or the state level. I am a sucker for a good state fair. I went to Gen Con. Julia went to the Indiana State Fair, and I think she had more fun than me. She said it was the most fun thing in the world, and she didn't have to run Hunter. So, yeah. <laughs> and then like two weeks later, we went to a, a county fair and that was nice. I like the small child that was like, hey, that pig was bought by a butcher. I don't like where this is going. Oh, yeah. The lemonade carnies. We should do an episode on that sometime. There's if. <laughs> yeah. I didn't know that someone could sell lemonade while tainted with jor. That is my best way of doing it. Or alternatively, they were wraiths tied to it or they were mummies using it to regain Ba. So the history of the circus proper, it starts with a quote from the Apocrypha of Lilith that someone's been kicked out for teaching mortal stuff. And then we find out about a white tented gathering in Ionia around 486 BCE, where a group carries around a tree and worships a thonic god called Kara that is somewhat like Python. It seems to be a meld of this kind of Dionysian and Hidean tradition. We get a letter from Avitus Elegius, who is asking someone to infiltrate the circus after they had gone to visit and find that they already knew him, and they stage this awesome farce showing that they're like, we know exactly who you are. You are not going to find the missing senator's daughter. Then we get a few more pieces from 1857 through 1994, indicating that times have changed and things like animal welfare and maybe one day even human welfare may become a concern. This felt like a very major part of the book to me because it goes Greece, Roman Republic, Roman Empire, Araby, Dark Ages, 20th century. Just what, what's a mage game without a 700 year gap in lore? We finally get a long letter from what is ultimately an etherite that kind of represents the straight dope section of what's going on about a person who's been pursued by a crow for three days. We find out that Anastasio's old time lunar carnival and midnight circus is empowered by an incarna known as Kara or Karna, a spirit of masks in exchange who receives sacrifices in exchange for curing infirmities. Eventually, 
actually this becomes symbolized in the dying and reborn vine that was later attributed to Dionysus. Her symbol was a tree guarded by a white priesthood. Also bound to the circus were the powers of Apophis because sure, Egypt, why not? Everyone loves that stuff. Vampires found this curious and one of their numbers, Nemrael the Anakite, joined them and offered protection from the night folk. Kara calls to Namriel to sacrifice herself, and she did, and the group's like, well, that was fun, let's go east. Over time, the rites become more Dionysian, and the exchange becomes more whatever Kara thought was appropriate, and potentially taking beauty or power or wisdom as the spirits bound to it thought appropriate. We get the idea that like slowly this has gone from like one spirit to three spirits to kind of an agglomeration. I don't know that we get too many details on that later on who those entities are particularly. At some point, it is set down that Kara is attended to by a white queen, the white priest, and the Lord of Rains. The Lord of Rains has traditionally been a vampire, at least for the last several thousand years. At some point, the tree died, and the power that held that it held opposing Apophis fails, and the circus invites the worm, because why not fight evil with evil? This stuff isn't additive. Take that, Special Projects Division. In the late 700s, Astarte joins as a she, and she is still present as the White Queen. Anastasio joins in the 15th century and is now playing the balancing role between entropy and the infernal. That's like saying, I am balancing between the poles of shit and crap. We go through a few more vampires, and then Calabras the vampire joins, giving us the mage fairy vampire trifecta that reigns to this day. The fairy lures in people. Calabras is a master of mirrors and illusion. Anastasio feeds the souls to the spirits of the circus. The letter is from a dead etherite, and they're like, isn't it weird you actually got this off? And they're like, time magic, shit's weird. I'm really glad they kind of had it broken into two sections where it's like, here's old stuff, here's not old stuff. And my first thought is, oh, wow, there is obviously some interesting metaphysical things happening in here. This is a World of Darkness book, which means it's going to be 75 chapters until we get an explanation because we're going to go through all the characters first. I thought this section was effective. Some of the parts looked like a ransom note where you had seven different fonts on the same page. Like someone's like, oh, it's got Microsoft Publisher. Let me show you. Pook has a note in their notes that just says, aka White Wolf discovers fonts. Um, as always, I like the the Vincent Locke art that we got throughout, but otherwise I thought this was effective. I think these are things that in a modern day game, these would be provided in a second section that you could print out and hand to players. If you're like, hey, this is something that you find during character research. That's what I like. I think the one thing I wanna to add to this section is that it really does tie into multiple threads of the world of darkness, right? If you are the type of fan who has read nearly every book, I haven't read most of Changeling, but I have read lots of the rest of it and the bits of Changeling I have read, I can see the influence here, right? It is really effective at making those ties, which gives you so many opportunities to get into the story, right? Even if you don't follow anything else in this book, this section and other parts later really just give you inroads, like ways to make it work into your story that I think this is the epitome of this era of White Wolf's story hook every sentence or every other sentence mentality that they kind of went away from for a while. And I think they really do it great here. Mm. This kind of reminds me in reading 
darkening sky where there's a little thing where it's like, we're not going to bore you with real world history because Wikipedia exists. And I'm like, thanks for recognizing my intelligence book. And then immediately it launches into some Byzantine, literally (laughs) diatribe. And I'm like, no, give me the real world information. Likewise here, I'm like, I'm pretty familiar with the world of darkness. You don't have to treat me like a child and tell me what a wraith is. And then like three sentences later, it's like, it's an Engelbred fleshfoot. As we all know, I'm like, yes, I'm familiar with the Engelbred freshfoots. How about you just remind me so that I know that you know. What notes? Yeah. <laughs> like, link. Look up here. Citation <laughs> needed. Yeah. <laughs> if you can get through this and you understand every reference, you win at the World of Darkness. We will make you a crown. Yeah. You, you could have read every book in the World of Darkness. Doesn't mean you can keep in your head. The reference to the Crimson Book of the She is certainly exercising my mind. I don't think that's something we've seen before or since. So and in general, like because this was so early in changeling, it's kind of feels a bit weird when they're bringing the changeling stuff. It's like, oh yeah, that was in the first supplement of changeling and then never mentioned again. If I can say kind of typical for Chris Howard. (laughs) It's like, oh yeah, here's 10 million concepts which are here in this book that is 60 pages long and we're never gonna hear from them. Oh yeah. Including his own books. He doesn't Yeah. I think I want to add here, and we'll get into it a little bit more later, though, that the trifecta of beings that are the metaphysical forces behind this circus. Terry, you sort of got here, but I want to emphasize that the Defiler Worm and Apophis are both honestly, in the world of darkness, elements of oblivion, right? They're they are creatures that are supposed to destroy and make things nothing, but they exist as two separate things here in semi-opposition slash balance of each other. And I don't get it. I don't hate it. I just don't get it. Like, I think I would have preferred they were like, oh, you know what we're going to do is we're going to have something that is Weaver-ish or something like that. They could have had corruption versus destruction as opposition. Like, that would still be wormy, both of them. Which I think is what they were going for, right? So I'm with you. Like, I'm, and I'm not saying this in any sort of a negative way, because I love everything else that this book does. But it is the one thing that I was like, we had the tools to make it a little bit more balancey than they did. I did find it a little bit strange the way it was structured because often like this section somebody actually posted in our discord how they liked that a lot of the storyteller characters have an agenda listed separate from image role-playing notes quote etc and there are little bits like that in the write-ups of these characters but there's also like references to things that we're not going to learn about for 40 pages so i do think if you are reading this book you can read through this and enjoy it and be like wow these are cool characters but understand that you may need to go back and read it again once you've actually read the rest. Anyway, so the circus is divided into five circles ranging from the lowly freaks to the infernal trinity at the top. So these are the statted characters or the mostly statted characters that we get. So the fifth circle is the lowliest of circus outcasts. Even most of the freaks look down on them. We have Dmitry Babinov, a Siberian Goral, who's basically a trained circus bear and enforcer with little free will left. The characters may manage to rescue him and then he would be a powerful ally. There's Tub of Flesh, an eighth generation Nosferatu who has been liquefied by Sasha Vykos. This was quite early in Vykos's career yeah, as an overused drop. signature character. So I guess Sam Haight was an ashtray by this point. So they had to. But yes, Tub of Flesh is, quote, ropey strands of moist purple black meat who functions as a watchdog who nevertheless hates the circus. And that is its quote. He's like, if he hates the circus, 
There's Tamika Tanaka, a Malkavian mime who believes she's constantly acting out a part in a no play. She doesn't speak, which makes me wonder how well she actually uses her power of dominate or her linguistics five that she has. But And she used to have a Toreador lover who died in the service of the circus, so she may turn against them. There's also Tattoo Tim, who's a nervous wreck that gives Bane tattoos to visitors, and Bill Bilak, the cruel animal trainer whose days are numbered. So that's the fifth circle. The fourth circle is the largest one, so there's a bunch to get through in here. These are the rank and file performers. There's Aubrey Dutet, the Bastet acrobat. He's athletic, but also enjoys existentialist philosophy because he's half French. He's aware of the circus's evil, but has only recently been getting the will up to make a break for it, along with Belle Starr, a gangrel sharpshooter, who, that's her whole character. She's a sharpshooter. There's Lee Carmody, who's a cult of ecstasy Barabbas Nefandus, a jeeted beatnik-turned-carnival barker who runs the Tunnel of Love, or whatever long name it has and he's moved on from his hallucinogen explorations towards the goal of creating a virus that kills only the smug stupid and power hungry which he also believes will basically be the entire world and he's a bad guy honestly out of <laughs> out of these characters he's like mid-tier i would say there's the diaquesto family which is a little bit on the nose because they are horse riders they are billed as the four horsemen of the apocalypse and are basically regular humans two of them have noumena and two of them have kind of cool evil weapons but they represent death war famine and sickness and their horses are possessed by banes then there's the scribunda sisters who are sort of very stereotypical rome fortune tellers so take note that the g word is in here throughout because it was 90s white wolf but they are aurora meridia and fata they function as kind of a maiden mother crone triad who keep alive the original pure rites of the circus towards the goddess Kara. so they're secretly undermining the evil influences as best as they can on the other side you have orenda foam singer a garu storyteller who's part of the gale stalkers slash younger brother slash w tribe but she believes she has been made to believe that she's the last of the croatan slash middle brother she's hypnotized to kind of neutralize her because the garu are the most dangerous foes of the circus so when they come to attack she's like no no it's it's great here you know don't don't attack the circus so she's kind of a deterrent then there are the hetaire who are three incubi slash succubi who lure new converts to the circus through sexual attraction currently they consist of ilanti an unseely she knight formerly of skaha turned courtesan Rati, a Toreador high priestess of sexuality, and Alexander, a cowardly silver fang snared by the carnival, with a bane inside him that, at a word, can make him sort of foolishly and self-destructively brave. And I kind of like that, a trigger thing. But We also get the note in here a couple times that the carnival is one of the few things able to penetrate the shadow curtain of Baba Yaga around Russia. That was a thing that was happening in the 90s. And there's also flexible Helga, an aging temptress. Need I say more? She's morally flexible. She herself yes. only has dexterity of one. Yeah. She's, she's flexible in her opinions. Yes. <laughs> yeah. uh, then we get the freaks. They live in a press board maze. At the top of the bill is the Pentex-created Fomor, Mr. Bile, who resembles a demented, boo-sodden Muppet with two heads. But he loves the circus for finding his place in the world, which generally consists of entertaining jaded Gen Xers with gross-out body horror. The other freaks listed here include Mulella the Mule Girl, the scarecrow-like Bane called Burlap Boy, Herm Aphrodite, the Bearded Lady, the Barlow family of little people who function as secret police armed with silver, McTargart the dog-faced detective and a helpful 
tough guy with a heart of gold, and Vesuvius the Fire Eater, who apparently used to be a law student and beat poet. There seems to be a lot of characters like that where it's they had like, here, take these two qualities and then the actual supernatural role that they have in the circus and just mash them all together and like out pops a character. When you have to make 400 of them, that's what you do. Well, I know recently, yeah, you've had this experience with generating your character cards. So it's that kind of pick and save kind of thing. Then we have the carnival hands, which are the operators, vendors, etc. They're mostly humans who have been worn down by their circus jobs and only suspect the true nature of the circus. They include the elephant keeper, Klaus Ron, and the raisons, a trio of Quebecois acrobats who are kind of on edge about their jobs. And I like that there is this population of superstitious, semi-ignorant, but capable mortals as like core characters for this setting. I think it would be interesting to have a game from that perspective too. That's the fourth circle. So then the third circle is where the characters start to have real influence within the carnival, often having personal followers. We have Dr. Owl, who's not a son of Ether, but an Electrodyne engineer, mad scientist with Arate 6, kind of a relic of the technocratic union who applies Enlightenment era views to the Museum of Oddities that he curates, some of which are presumably fey because the book notes that his venality kind of numbs them into compliance. His assistant is the lion-faced Leon Carpenter. These names, Leon the Lion. There's the Cone of Flesh, who is a nine-foot-tall cannibalistic fomor, often mistaken for a pile of rancid mayonnaise, but it likes wearing makeup and a tiara, and it runs the freak show and it just wants to be loved. So how many giant puddles of flesh are in this just two there are just, only just the two, two so far just the two yeah but speaking of names that are a little on the nose you say leon carpenter is yes. a little i think cone of flesh is a little on the nose yes <laughs> well i don't know that he even has a nose to yeah <laughs> uh, it might be on someone else's someone else's there's koba the clown formerly known as yirgifsaka a fomor who wants to become chief clown and take over all the comedy acts of the circus for which he's willing to use his considerable gun skill, army of subordinates, and training in German avant-garde theater. I love this character. There's Zimbra, who is a hulking specter that used to be an executioner in London, but now serves the circus to indulge his dark and sadistic appetites. The three mystics are a trio of mages who peddle their wares and offer advice from a small unobtrusive tent. They consist of Kuan Yin, the Chinese necromancer, Sergei the orphan, who's a hypnotist slash dance instructor, and Herr Fiddler, an actual Nazi etherite nefandus covered in not enough lava burns. Then we have the court of Astarte, more on her in a bit. These are the changelings who have prestige from being associated with that powerful fae. They include the Summer King, who's an arrogant resurgence Arishi, formerly of House Elil, who runs the Renaissance Fair part of the circus. Ringwain, the she formerly of House Fiona, who's a lost one and a harpist, and close friends with Astarte. Calypso, the Ishu bard, who secretly plots to take over the court. Mr. Quigley, the diminutive Boggan jester, and three troll guards. So not a huge amount of variety, I would say, but it was the early days of Changeling, so they hadn't you know, fully explored all of the possibilities yet. The second circle are the ones who have been with the circus a long time and have accrued some real power. They are the seconds in command to the Trinity. We have the bishop, who's a chorister nefandus and the head clown currently, who sings to bring salvation to the masses through comedy, but he's not actually very funny, so his shows seem to be part sermons for conveying his brand of proselytization. 
Then Mr. Flint is the Korax Paymaster and Head Spy, who has been gradually corrupted and seeks to advance within the circus. And Baroque, the Samadhi Keeper of the Dead, who was formerly a necromancer overlord in Tibet, but now cultivates an illusionary appearance of a friendly, dapper Jamaican fortune teller. He wants to oust Calibris and take his place in the Infernal Trinity. The Infernal Trinity makes up the first circle. The circus must always have three leaders, but the current occupants can be replaced. They are the most powerful of the denizens, but also the ones most bound to the circus's existence. They, we are told, resist the entropic undertow only through their great strength of will, canny maneuvering, and help from outside sources. So we have Calibris, the magician. That's his title, not his actual, you know. Uh, he is a sixth-generation Toreador who was invited into the position in the 1600s by his counterparts, Astarte and Cavendish, as part of a plot to oust his predecessor. He's an artist of illusion that he picked up from years of hanging out with the Ravnos. His magic is woven throughout the carnival, and because he's the only one of the three without demonic investments, occasionally the god figure of Kara sneaks through and makes him do good things, which he hates, because he's evil. Then there's Astarte. She is the Autumn Queen and Opener of Paths. She is an ancient chief, formerly of House Fiona, and a lost one who has been with the circus on Earth since the late 8th, early 9th century. She sees herself as managing the entropy of Apophis, or Typhon, to bring about winter in order to then bring about spring. So it's sort of classic shadow court stuff. And she's the one who moves the carnival around. She is their guide, but her true goal is to bring back Arcadia. She's also got a bunch of fun treasures, so... And maybe, I think, the only changeling or fae that we see in the entire game who actually has demonic investments. I can't think of any other ones who have gone that road. Lastly, there is Devin Cavendish, a.k.a. Anastagio, a.k.a. Yaw Guild, a.k.a. The Ringmaster. He is a chorister nefandus, though they don't list his Arate, which I found very curious. That's how powerful he is. Yeah, he's beyond Arate. He joined the circus in the 1400s and seeks to buy off his debt to the stockholders who have granted power to him and to the circus. He longs to become a dark incarna with his own circus, but until then he functions as a diplomat and showman who keeps his true power and motivations under wraps. So he's the one dealing in all of that sort of economy of soul traffic. He's also got the eye in his palm that controls minds and a watch that causes rapid aging, both of which we saw in the prologue fiction. So he's not that nice of a guy. And that's the characters. Any any favorites or This is another one of the things where storyteller characters seemingly get to break like every rule. Yeah. And that's fine. That's that's how shit like this rolls where it's like Devin Cavendish is now one of the oldest magi in existence that is still like out and walking around. But the thing that I liked is people have different motivations. There is internal cleavages. I would have appreciated a relationship map or something like that. So you have the organization of the circles, but also you would have the easy to convince, the hard to convince, the needy, the people who are only there for something, the people who who are really have sold out or something like that. It talks about having a few kind of obvious fake freaks that way when people actually wind up seeing the cone of flesh or something like that they're like haha he's just wearing a mayonnaise costume or something like that he's been wearing it for quite a while yeah there are some stereotypes in here 
but there's enough deviations to keep me happy. Like Dr. Owl isn't a Barabbas. Not every mage in here is. They have their own motives. There's a lot of complex motives. There's a lot of different ins. There's a variety of corruptions, which I like. And reading through this, this felt like Chaos Factor, but fixed. Because when yeah. you read through Chaos Factor, it's like, these are all gross stereotypes of all of these groups, and they're all ridiculously powerful. But here, there's this layer of variety and nuance that I really appreciated. And again, this whole chapter was part of that test of, oh, so you think you know the world of darkness. And it's like, okay, I know all these things. Legacy, Peacock, I have no concept of what that is at all. From yeah. These are some very potent characters. If nothing else, this is an amazing resource when you done need a character. For sure. Um, yeah. I do, I do think, I mean, this is a 90s White Wolf book, so there are things that you really shouldn't bring into your game. It would be easy to fix it, and you wouldn't break anything about the book by doing it. On the fly, fixing a few things at your table, you're good. If you get rid of the genocide, everything breaks. <laughs> They're still horrible people, right? And they would be terrible people. Like, keeping the Nazi in, I think, is okay. They're a villain, right? But, like, the, the, the Romani thing is the first one that pops up. But there's a few other things where you're like, eh, I'd change some of this, but you could still have those characters. Yeah, the badness is not load-bearing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Here's the thing with the stereotypes in this book, too. They are the ones I usually rail about in every other White Wolf book that I read, right? I think they make sense here in this circus, right? Because the circus traditionally is a place where people are intentionally stereotyped, right? Yeah. They are intentionally stereotyped. They are dehumanized for people's entertainment, right? I'm not saying that's a good thing. I'm saying it is mm -hmm. an excellent set piece for honest, like, games that look at those things and go man in 2023 circuses really aren't a thing anymore why well this is why you know if you run through the midnight circus and your game is set in 2023 you're gonna go this is horrible why did people do this right why was this a thing and i think it's an excellent opportunity to really go yes but these are also people right every one of these characters has motivations that makes them deep and interesting and when they are a stereotype there is an immediate like undercut of that stereotype that happens immediately in the write-up where you're like oh okay this isn't just the immediate stereotype that i'm that this character is portraying they are a real person who is portraying that stereotype and i look at this and i go this is exactly what white wolf thought they were doing with every other book <laughs> but here they actually got it yeah one little nitpick job like there are circuses in 2023. There's a lot of them, actually, that have been coming back. Uh, are they having the horrible animal cruelty? Some are, actually, but some are not. You can definitely bring it in and be like, yeah, this is the worst reflection of things that are bad in the real world. And I think it even works better now with that. Yeah, the kind of the phenomenon of the circus has kind of deconstructed. I mean, Cirque du Soleil comes out of the, the Montreal yeah. school that was just trying to being like, we're going to double down on clowns. <laughs> and somehow we got Cirque du Soleil out the other end of it. And you have roving animal acts, which are frequently recovered or convalescing animals or something like that. So we've kind of figured out a way to break out the individual components. The thing that strikes me is one of the recurring things is like, what horrible things to us are you willing to put up to just to be appreciated and have a sense of belonging and a sense of place. And also just because I think a given thing is terrible, the it is frequently the case that the characters like 
so what? I have to eat live chickens regularly. Job's a job. Like, I don't know how anyone could do that. That is more reflecting my biases. That is reflecting my assumptions more so than theirs. And I think that is useful. There's another way that with a, a bunch of slight tweakings, we could create a version of Midnight Circus where nothing is wrong. Where, <laughs> yeah. where the veneer is still there, but there isn't anything CD beneath it. And it is just another way of living. And I, I appreciate that kind of vantage too. Yeah, I wouldn't do that in my game for this though because i think having the corrupt evil thing there's corrupt evil things in the real world too right oh yeah and it provides <laughs> and plot. In the world of darkness yeah. you need corrupt <laughs> evil things yeah it's not the noontide circus right i and i think right this is just the space where it feels like even reading this and i've read this over and over and over again throughout the years so i feel like i keep coming back to it right the opportunity to do that and never coming away going this is unusable i've mm. never felt like that i've always yeah. felt like I can use this nearly as written with a few adjustments to make my players comfortable, right? Because there's, yeah. we mentioned this at the top, if we keep the intro that I made, that sexual assault is a theme throughout this story. So you may not use that, right? That's something that most players are uncomfortable with, but having it as a background element of this question that happens in the story, mm -hmm. I don't think is actually inappropriate necessarily again, with the right boundaries given to your players as you're kind of talking through that. And it's not played for laughs or anything right. like that. A horrible thing, and maybe players don't want that, and that's fine, you can take it out then. But like, it, there are, I think, I have players who'd be like, yeah, we having this in is good, because this is reflecting the real world too, right? So... Yeah, and when something is played for laughs, it is specifically to make you uncomfortable. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so... And that brings us to chapter three the circus right and the circus uh, this chapter is effectively the set pieces for the npcs to interact with i really like how this book is set up in that way right where it gives you the characters it then gives you the places they can be the things that they do in those places and you can use them as you want as a effective toolbox of different elements as you're walking around the circus you're going to go a different way than someone else like every time you interact with it is going to be different and that's cool the way it's designed so you get the attractions first which it starts with the big top right the big top being the largest tent in a circus where you have the main act and it gives you the equestrian act we talked about that with the dequesto family right and it tells you what their act is like you get this act about elephants when i was a kid every circus had elephants right it was a thing so you've got them here you've got the trapeze act you've got this dancing dervish act and again these use the different characters from before so you've got Aubrey Duterte you've got Sergei Kuntilov but Sergei right you've got these characters in their various places you've also got a tiger and wolf act the wolf acts being black spiral dancers who have been stuck in lupus form you've got the magic show Calabras's actual illusion show where he never uses real chemistry to do his magic he's just using actual illusion techniques and he's probably the top of the illusionist tier in the world he is one of the best illusionists in the world then you've got to me my favorite part the clown information um bishop's clown review i have to stop here and say this before I discuss clowns, this was the book that got me interested in clown history. And clown history is one of those things that when you say to people, they look at you like you have 10 heads, right? Why would you care about clown history? For me, diving into what clowns used to be, the purpose of clowning, the purpose of the types of storytelling that clowns did and do, 
is really fascinating. It started as a religious ritual, potentially, where people would put on white face paint to indicate that they were your ancestors or the dead who were coming back into the world to tell you a morality story. That got built into early church history and early church performances, passion plays. Again, utilizing either puppets or people to indicate the dead uh, going through a morality story of sin and hopefully redemption, usually not redemption, because the story was about if you fall into sin, you're stuck and you're silly and you're ridiculous because you have allowed yourself to do that, right? So that said, that tiny bit of history, I have hours that I could talk about clowns. These two clown groups, Bishop's Group is a traditional clown group with the connection to a, the religious tradition, uh, the Catholic tradition, particularly of that passion place uh, style of clowning, right? Bishop thinks he's funny, but isn't. And that fits, again, that style of clowning, right? But then you've got Coba's Progressive Clown Show. Coba's Progressive Clown Show is both a modern clowning style in that the jokes are supposed to be taking apart the human issues in society, right? But what I love about these two clown groups in particular is that Coba's group are revolutionary communists, straight up, and bishops represent the conservative Catholic style, while also representing these two drastic different types of clowning. I find that dialectic perfect. I think they should I, have a poster that says, seize the means of fun yes. or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> yes. It is everything to me. Everything about the way these two clown groups is set up is both perfect from a clown perspective and a social commentary perspective. But then you've got Blotto the Clown and Clown Alley also. You have the third group of clowns who are sad clowns. Wow. They are clowns that have really, they just kind of wander around and do little clown acts, right? And they are cast-offs from these other clown groups who are just not wanted by either of them and offers an excellent inroad for building alliances with characters within the space if you want to get into clown politics, which I do. I do. I want to get into clown politics. Can I read my favorite part of Blood of yes. the Clown and Clown Alley? The stench of decay and cheap alcohol permeates their tent. It is not uncommon for one of the clowns to be hallucinating with a case of the DTs, the delirium tremens, screaming about gluttonous monsters. <laughs> one of the most unnerving sights is seeing the faceless men of Clown Alley applying the grease paint and creating their faces. This isn't an in. Like, frequently... There is a spectrum of these people are beyond saving and you will see them die and that will get you to rise to action. These are people who are too far. This person is a canard or a canary and this person is the one that you could legitimately work with. And seeing that spectrum here and just the, uh, yeah, we don't see mentions of the DTs a lot in World of Darkness books. That's uh, No, it's the thing they're not referenced often from the clowns, which are uh, absolutely my favorite part from there. You get into the rides and amusements. You get the tunnel of unmentionable desires, uh, the tunnel of love, right? It is a horror show location, right? It is a ride that takes you through all of the dark things that are happening in the circus. And if you are not paying attention, you're going to miss all of it. But effectively, the entire story of the circus is here in the tunnel of love. And I find that awesome just on its own, right? You get the Ferris wheel. The Ferris wheel is Apophis. It is one of the forces of oblivion 
if you are in the Shadowlands, you can see that it just is this sucking void, pulling in wraiths and destroying them, um, seemingly gleeful, right? Like this a lot, except that it's only in the Shadowlands. I would also bring it over into the Umbra, right? Where there are both reflections yeah. uh, of it. So everybody can get there. Yeah, right? I definitely want a changeling. I mean, it's the Ferris wheel, the iron wheel, like... That yeah. should definitely have a changeling implication. Oh man, is that an association to changelings like death to the Ferris wheel? Just Just <laughs> yeah, yeah, there should I, be something, I think. Yeah, yeah I don't, I don't think we've ever specifically come across it, but I, why not? Yeah. Then you've got the Mirror Palace. Xanadu's Mirror Palace is a mirror maze, right, that you would have in, in every sort of carnival or circus or uh, amusement park, right? The Hall of Mirrors, though, has several really important story hook sections, right? And one of the vampires that used to be part of the Infernal Trinity is locked in a mirror here. It is very interesting that he is a Tremere. If you don't know about Tremere's and mirrors, you should go look that up. This is a way to hook you into a bigger vampire story if you wanted to do that. You've also got the first mention of a small girl who is the messenger of Apophis. She has snakes on her arms and she is effectively his avatar within the circus. Um, you have the merry-go-round, which doesn't necessarily have to be anything evil unless you want it to break apart and start attacking people with the various beasts that are part of it. Arcadia, which has nothing to do with changelings, except when it does, Arcadia in this case is an arcade, right? Where you play all the newest video games done in the World of Darkness style. There's a very interesting one that I'm going to talk about for just a second, Kill Wolf. Here's what's really interesting about the Kill Wolf video game. It is effectively designed as a werewolf killing simulator. But what the elite troop of action bill commandos are helping the Native American village. And the werewolves are the antagonists trying to stop them from helping the Native Americans. That is an interesting twist of the trope that you would see with a lot of like Western themed video games. And I like how that is done as a really like we're, we're not setting this up to be as stereotypical as you think it is but it allows you like a little bit of like social commentary as well on there you've got the minor divertisements this word is supposed to mean like diversion and entertainments uh, it's a portmanteau uh, or squishing together of those words i don't know but most of these are not evil right they're just rides that are fine especially the kids ones those are fine nothing's harmful about those at all currently currently nothing harmful currently nothing <laughs> so. yes the queen's own theater and puppet show is which is part of the renaissance fair and that acts as the backdrop for everything that's happening with astarte and the changeling group what i really love here are the uh, performances with one that is not worm infested right the one is the princess who loves the moon and it's supposed to be a reference to astarte here i'm also thinking there's a great werewolf story hook there where is there a reference or a connection between luna and astarte here that would be interesting to dive into. There's the Museum of Oddities, where Alexander from the intro story is here, as well as a mermaid who is a real mermaid, a seraphim who is a chimmerling who was pulled out of the umbra into the real world, a sphinx who is an actual sphinx who works like an actual sphinx does, and then you have a harpy and this uh, mehen, a python who is intelligent and seems to like to eat things around the circus. So they have kept Mehen locked away until he starts chanting in Egyptian and Aramaic, just for some, you know, awesome ambiance to the theater, to the circus, right? 
The chanting in Egyptian and Aramaic, like who doesn't do that to unwind at the end of a long and tiring day? Oh yeah, I mean that's just a get two drinks in me and bam, yeah, no, just... <laughs> the enema elish just comes out of there it. There you go. <laughs> exactly. Then you've got description of Freak City and just kind of the how that location is built and designed. The mystics tents. We talked about the mystics before. There are three of them. They share a tent, right? And at times that tent can be a uh, safe haven for wraiths. And at other times, it's just weird and evil in other ways. So exciting things can happen in the mystics tent. You have Fortuna's Wheel, which is a gambling location. It is a money goes to charities, of course, but actually it's a way for Cavendish to get souls. He uses to both keep himself just without fully selling his soul to any of the individuals, any of the beings who run the circus, as well as do evil things because he likes to do evil things and take souls from people, right? And then it has Seramis, uh, Semiramis, Semermerman, this guy's loft, right? It's a brothel. It's got Pee Wee Herman as the brothel owner. I would not use this location. This is the one place I'm like, I don't need this. But if you want Pee Wee Herman to be a weirdo in your circus, you can do that. And also moment of silence for the recent death of Paul Rubin. Yes. Um, Who didn't deserve to any of the like negative stereotyping that he gets in this particular book. You also have uh, the tattoo parlor, pizza stand, and things like that. But what is really awesome about this chapter is the end of it here where it tells you what's really going on, right? It describes the metaphysical nature of the carnival. It talks about the glamour veil that sort of kind of prevents people from remembering everything that happens here, even while they're selling parts of their soul off, right? It describes the, to me, and I think we'll talk about this more. Maybe we'll talk about this together, guys. We'll talk about the barbs, snares, and investments in a moment. And then it tells you about Kara and what Kara's capabilities and abilities are, as well as the transportation of the circus. So there's a lot going on in this chapter. I know I ran through it. Any thoughts before we talk about barbs, snares, and that? Giuseppe's pizza stand is not all it seems. It's just one of those lines that you have to take a moment to kind of appreciate. Josh, That's very pizza stand, though. Yeah. <laughs> the pizza stand carries the dark curse. And you're like, yeah, so does everything else here. Have you literally never been to a carnival midway? Again, uh, as Josh mentioned, I like the fact that regularly they are slightly subverting tropes. Uh, the mystic's tent is a genuine place of reprieve. The, the loft yeah. can be a place of recovery for certain characters. It is fundamentally different from like the tunnel of love which yeah. shows you your dark reflection, whereas the loft is more of a notion of indulgence. Yeah, it's not all cartoon evil where you go, this is so obviously bad, why would anybody be okay with this? And I forgot to note, uh, Ferris wheel is named after the inventor more so than the material, but I do like the idea that they would have a misspelled one that were like F-E-R-R-O-U-S and it were just this yeah. giant cold iron thing, which would be structurally unstable, but still, that yeah. would be like one of the best FUs to Arcadia. Like, this is what it takes to hold back Arcadia. I think yeah. that could be interesting. As someone who has not been to many circuses, carnivals, fairs, etc. in life, but has been to more renaissance fairs than i care to admit i liked how that was the vector of changeling stuff was to have this renaissance fair mixed in and answer it's a mobile freehold can white people appropriate their own history yes yes <laughs> the answer is yes <laughs> so let's talk about these barbs snares and investments right during our, our conversation pre to the show right there was this idea there was this comment made that it was really nice that they created a system for this place um, and it, almost a, a wish that White Wolf had done this more with supplements, right? Where you're trying to theme a specific story, create a mechanic that fits 
that particular thing that you're looking to do. And they do that with the Chronicles of Darkness, right? Shout out to Chronicles for doing that right. This system, I don't know. I like it as a concept. The thing that sort of bothered me about how to use it was that it seemed very, it didn't seem fleshed out enough to me. Like if I were storytelling and I had a, an occasion to give someone snares or even a barb, it's like, I'm not sure how I would determine how many to give. But I like the fact they note things like if you get out of the clutches of the circus, all but two snares fade. So you never really get away from it uh, unless someone powerful intervenes. But yeah, I mean, to your point, I like that this is a sui generis system that we don't really see anywhere else. And it's the kind of alternative metaphysics that doesn't really fit cleanly into any of the other specific games, but it works in this setting. So I dig that. I thought the kind of the ramp down was pretty fast. Yeah. Like, I wish there had been more metaphysical information on where this energy goes. Like, what the shareholders demand. Some more information about them. We get a little more information later on that kind of plays in with that. But that, to me, was the one part it was missing. So you accumulate snares. You get things in exchange for it from just a momentary reprieve to an item to a level of sphere magic. Those get converted into... Uh, those are snares. Those get converted into barbs, which represent like the totality of the hold of the, the circus on you and your ability to resist it. And at each level, it is systematized. So at three barbs, you're at minus two willpower for the purposes of resisting the circus. And at five, you become an NPC, which is kind of how it goes generally. And then you have investments, which are kind of like a side thing and require explicit bargaining, maybe because Mage already has a pretty extensive infernal investment system that pops up over the course of the various books of madness. I thought it was a pretty good start and a way of systematizing it. And also, I like it as a storyteller because it shows the players you're being fair, kind of. Like, no one likes to find out that they've accidentally lost their soul. Like, we, I, we've encountered the asshat adversarial storyteller. So, but when the storyteller says, okay, this is using this new system, please add snares and barbs to your character sheet. As you accumulate them, this is generally going to happen. You won't always know what causes it, but I, I'm also perfectly comfortable with there being a little bit of bleed between player and character because assuming you have a supernatural character that is in any way canny, they would probably notice some subtle changes in attitude to be like, the circus is kind of getting its hooks in me, but I, maybe I'm just starting to enjoy myself. And it gives that knob for the table to dial in how they want to portray corruption. And again, to prevent the one thing, that, one of the things that this book does excellently, preventing the cartoonish display of corruption. It'd be very easy if the player character's like, you know what? I don't think this is worth it. And they'll leave once the things start. Like there's a long lead up where they could do that and they're not really that screwed by it. You're like, but you have reasons to stay. And that would feel like you chose not to because you sort of did, but it's just that you can encounter the circus and go, nope, and run away, right? Which I've seen happen. I've run the circus, I don't know, uh, several times. And I've had players do that multiple times where they the circus has been in town they have noticed it and they have said no I, we're not grabbing that story hook right um but i kept it occurring so that they would know like this is a thing and i don't i'm not mm -hmm. i'm giving you a bus ticket you don't have to get on the bus but this is a thing that is happening that you get to decide if you're going to interact with and if you don't it is going to continue as corrupting cycle around the universe 
The other thing I yeah. thought was interesting is that last section called Circus Transportation, where it talks about how Astarte has the power to, through the Glamour Veil, to move it around. This answers two things. One of the problems I have systematically with things like this is how has the people running this not simply accumulated enough botches to have this fall apart, which is the natural result of any extended action in the world of darkness. Um, and it says, well, we have this sweet, generous piece of, of magic, both with and without a K, to explain it. But also it says traverses the various realms and i want to see the game where this pops up in the dreaming where this pops up in yeah. the high umbra and what does it mean for well-meaning jagglings and gafflings <laughs> to yeah, suddenly that, uh, be at a yeah, carnival yeah. yeah imagine puka like mid the midnight circus in the fields behind you know oh yeah setting up outside of the boggan cottages and everything yeah yeah for sure yep. and the only place it can't go is arcadia so it really yeah. has access to everywhere including the Shadowlands. And yeah, it would be yeah. an awesome thing. <laughs> Outskirts of Stygia. There's the Midnight Circus. Well, I like the do, idea do, of it do, being do, there do, do, and it just being like there, everything is dark enough. It's just good, clean fun. I like better than the hierarchy, we're all joining the circus. <laughs> well, and I mean, I don't I don't know Wraith that well, but my understanding is that given the way the territories of Stygia are run, that something which distracts the resident Wraiths enough to keep them in line would actually be something they'd be into. So, yeah. Yep. So that brings us to chapter four, Bread and Circuses. So chapter four, Bread and Circuses, which is the crossover focused section, I'd say, or focused on how this, what this means for each of the games. I have this little bugbear and all the crossover rules in World of Darkness, where they call it power levels, where I'm just like, why do you, we don't need this rule. It's making all the powers across the games when they interact with each other work like vamp some vampire disciplines do with each other, where you have, you compare like, an art versus a sphere rank versus a discipline level versus the rank of your werewolf because gifts don't really have levels that way. It's a little bit helpful. In general, like all the games have more crossover with mortals as a rules. So I think that generally works pretty well, I find. So they, they focus so much on these and I'm always like, eh, I don't need it. But then we get into the specific specific rules for each game. And I think this is actually pretty helpful. Yeah, vampire, it's like, well, there's nothing really special about vampire for this year. For Gary, it gets into the Trinity implications, where this is a mix of wild and worm energies with very little weaver, which I thought was kind of neat. I'm not as big a werewolf expert as the other Josh here, but I need any stretch. But it says the gauntlet's always four. The Magi, it has interesting, the quintessence is tainted by entropy, and it gets a snare for every two points quintessence they draw. In Mage, I want more rules like that, where they've talked about it, and it feels like there's something else you could agree or disagree with other mage people about Mage here, but I find it's like, that's a thing that was an earlier in Mage, where it's like drawing quintessence have of certain heavily aspected sources can have effects on you. It seems to have dropped over the game, but I, I like that personally. And then it's like some effect, it's, the, it's not the consensus here also. Paradox is less, so there's basically almost no vulgar with witnesses unless the carnival members deliberately make it. So what counts as vulgar and coincidental with certain effects are different than it would be. Entropy and time is easier, but correspondence is harder. Uh, we get into wraith rules where it's almost like a pseudo maelstrom, like a heavy shower versus a maelstrom's hurricane. And then the kithane, this gets into, this is the fact that it's so early. So some of the stuff I wouldn't apply into C20 now for sure. I'm confused what's talking about chimerical reality versus the near dreaming, but it does get into how one of them shifted. And it seems like you could sort of pick out what's changed there by it, how it changed the local chimera. And then it gets into like the deep metaphysical stuff. So there's a defiler worm, there's the infernal, 
which again, if we're talking about new things, that would have very different meanings in World of Darkness post-Demon of the Fallen. This is well before that. And then the Path of Kara, which is the god in Karna. I think they made up for this game. Yes, for this book. they did. Yeah, they did. <laughs> yeah, I searched, I looked. Yes, yeah. She's still the sort of not completely corrupted and, and sort of a little bit of a balance. And the fact that this is a lost one freehold, which I guess actually I was wondering before, like, is there such a thing as a moving freehold? Here's a teleporting moving freehold. It's a giant lost one freehold, which if you know what lost world freeholds are in Changeling, should just tell you everything else aside, don't go there. Like, that would be terrifying. I liked how impressively phoned in the plot hooks were. I, oh my god, the yes. changeling ones. <laughs> They're like, vampire, a vampire mime attacks. Okay, I'll give you that. Werewolf, a bane attacks. Okay. Wraith, mm -hmm. a specter attacks. Like, you're like, okay, got it. Well, the changeling one, it says the circus may be some sort of lost one freehold. And it's like, you, you just told me that. That's not a story hook. That is a piece of the description you just gave me. But. I do like the description of how it kind of tears across the metaphysical fabric of the world of darkness. And if yes. nothing else, it tells you, like, I, yeah. I've always said that I like Metaplot because it gives you binocular vision by showing you how a setting can change. It gives movement, and that makes it easier to resolve the thing. Having this book saying, hey, this is how it tears through the dreaming this is what it looks like in the underworld yeah. gives me an idea as a storyteller when i'm creating my own thing to have these weird metaphysical knots and the game says it's okay yeah, I, yeah. I, I do find it funny rules wise it's basically this like the effect it looks like on in changeling and in the dreaming would be as if you had a powerful marauder wandering around yeah it's about yep. the same effect yeah and in the opening chapter where it's like yeah you could customize it you could just make this a whole bunch of marauders and i'm like done it's a mage book now but as per the question of, of Kara, they mentioned that Kara may also have been Karna, and that is a recognized Roman deity, god of... Masks. Is it masks? Door hinges. Door hinges. Oh, right, because it's Karda Karna. Right yeah. There, right. Here's an interesting thing, too, for Vampire 5th Edition fans. I think whomever wrote Karna in Beckett's diary and then... The in, Tor uh, Tremere? Yes. Got it. Pretty sure they did so as an intentional reference to this book. If you look at it, there's some really subtle reasons why I think that is true. But knowing some of the writers and their interest area, I think it was an intentional choice. Deeply buried Easter eggs. Yep. Sometimes the eggs hatch. One thing that I actually really liked in this chapter, which there's a lot of little throwaway moments that would be nice if they were all kind of collated somewhere. But the fact that the all vulgar magic counts as coincidental can be suppressed by yeah. the denizens of the circus. That's a story hook right there because suddenly like it's that vector of power that you don't expect as a mage you're like all right i can fire off fireballs it's like oh no no they can you can't i like the idea of there being dark forces that are feeding off of humanity but their ultimate goal is not to tear down the gauntlet and to cross over it's not another cult of cthulhu thing it is this dark wound that is kind of moving yeah. around like it is this this mobile call practically yeah it's not a it's not a thing that you have to stop or else the world will change it's a thing that is part of the world and if you want to stop it you will change the world by stopping it i would like a little bit more information if i'm using this in a mage game like they have technocracy hooks here or there what prevents us from just like firebombing this from space <laughs> is it the fact that they don't know about it is it that is it the veil that even when like 
I like the idea that someone calls in the technocracy and they look through it and the glamour veil hits them and Chimmer Street 7 hits them and they just see a regular carnival and they're like, there it is. And it turns out to be like an unlicensed hot dog vendor or something like that. And we're like, we did good work today, boys. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yep. The one last bit that I want to pull out and just mention, if you are using Demon the Fallen, having Apophis be an earthbound works, right? You can totally swap that in and it is a uh, totally valid thing it doesn't change apophis as an entity here much at all and i think that would be really cool and one of the rules we get in devil's do is an earthbound doesn't need to just be bound to an object they can be bound to a place so i like the idea that this mix of the glamour veil astarte's magic allows the whole place to be the reliquary of apophis yeah so much cool stuff if you want to go there. And you don't have to because this is a 1996 book. They didn't have, even think about uh, Demon the Fallen as a thing yeah. for several more years. So this whole makes me go, I would just updating it for like the 20th anniversary line would be amazing. It wouldn't take much, but it would be like there's a, I think like for my table, I don't need someone else to do that. I could do that quite easily, but that gets us into chapter five, which is the wasteland. So I am on record saying that I do not like white wolf chronicle book pieces 99.9% .9 of the time right um often because they kind of railroad you into a into a thing right and it's not a really an effective thing that that echoes character actions causing changes in the world right um and it's very hard to do that in a pre-written module for world of darkness i think this is one of the few books that i think gets it right because what it does is it says this is a timeline in the timeline these things will occur unless your players do a thing to stop, prevent, or adjust it. Most of these things happen in ways that it is impossible for the players to get to everything. And they are happening separate enough that if the players are unaware of these bits and pieces, will still cause the entire event to occur, regardless of if they are actively trying to fight against it. They can, they can still stop it, right? It's possible, but it would take a lot of work and being in a lot of different places. And I don't see characters really pulling that off in the time frame that they have. For me, I think that is the way to do, or when uh, one of the ways to do a chronicle design for the world of darkness that works. Create a set, create a timeline of things that will occur, let the players try to interact. And, yeah. and uh, you have the, like the NPCs have motivations and they want to do things and it's, if the players come in and mess with it, you can actually figure out, well, it's pretty obvious what they do at that, the NPC would do at that point, or at least you can decide. And, and it, it does so in this in set piece of a place that does not exist in New York. This is one of the few times they created a fake place in a place to set a story in the world of darkness. Usually they use real places. Mm -hmm. And in this case, they created this element of New York called the Wasteland, which is supposedly in Westboro. Yeah. That doesn't exist. Yeah, the yeah, Valley of like, Ashes watched over by the eyes of Dr. Yeah. T.J. Eckelberg. Yeah, it actually yeah. it really frustrates me that they set that up by saying unless the players are native New Yorkers, it's like uh, no players who are native New Yorkers would well know that this is all invented out of whole cloth. Characters, yeah. on the other hand, may not. It was like my Hunter games where I'm like, first question, is anyone here from right. Dayton, Ohio? <laughs> <laughs> I've done that before where I'm like, okay, I'm going to set this thing in Boston. And someone's like, yeah. oh, cool. And I'm like, shit, that's a set, right? It's in this Westboro place and the circus moves in, right? It shows up. There is this Rod Leitner show. He is effectively a conservative radio host um, who is a technocrat Barabbas also. 
who becomes aware of the circus, right? And that's kind of like a background element, bits and pieces that players might hear about things happen. All of the characters from the opening story come back. They are characters here that you can interact with, including Lord River Thrush and Sherry. And I don't know that I really want to say much more about the actual plot of this, except that it gives you, again, it gives you everything from the World of Darkness, different op options, including a very interesting side story about vampires wanting to have a child that I really like the way they've written this, even though I probably wouldn't run it. I look at it and go, okay, you actually wrote this in a way that was fairly sensitive to the topic that you were writing about. To me, that's what this book does really well, is present things that other World of Darkness books try and do well. Um, and this one actually hits the mark, tells you a humanizing street-level story that also isn't street level really quickly, right? You can get into super deep metaphysics with this, but if you're looking for something that presents itself as street level, this is a really good story for doing that. So other thoughts from you guys on the adventure here. Page 100 is a crime against templating. <laughs> um, but points for the idea. Yeah, page 101 has some amazing evocative art by Andrew Ritchie, who illustrates the rest of this chapter, and I don't recall their work anywhere else. And it is it is wonderful. It is evocative. I like the idea, though, that you could kind of set this anywhere if without much work. The Rod Leitner show was an interesting phenomenon to me. I almost wanted to turn it into like a Greek chorus. <laughs> yes. Or alternatively, what is it? Lynn Thickpeg's character from The Warriors. Just kind of this voice out there threatening people and giving little outside facts. Kind of like we get the introductory piece in the history where the clowns reproduce the very mission that the person, the senator's representative is there to do. I would love that. Just that menacing thing of Rod Leitner announcing things your characters have done that they thought they did in secrecy kind of in this veiled sermon style. I liked it. And the vampire thing that you mentioned, I was like, oh, that's... that." <laughs> it's heavy, right? Yeah. But it's not... As far as I can read, and I kept going over this going, am I missing a bit, yeah. bit here? They don't finish the story. No, no. And they don't really finish most of the story bits they kind of set up here. And again, for me, I look at that and go, as a storyteller, thank you. You're giving me acts one, two, and three of a four-act thing, and then I get to build act four. And it's just another thing where it's like, hey, we have done the homework to go a little bit deeper than you expected us to. We have inverted this character archetype. We haven't completely suborned it, but we have shown how with just a little bit of work, you can make everything vastly more interesting. I, I think it does that well. And I agree. I like timeline-based ones, which is one of the reasons I do like Chaos Factor, except for the weird part where you have to go to Amon Jordan in the middle of it, and people will shoot at you with high-powered rifles. Anyway, yeah. made some podcasts for more information. I agree with Josh's picture in general of it. I do think the Tessa storyline, starting with Pookaboo, like the mechanics of it hurt my brain from an even one changeling perspective. It makes no sense, but... <laughs> It was kind of like, I mean, all of the stuff about Wasteland and Westboro, it's, I mean, yeah. you could do all of this without the circus and you would still have yeah. all of these like story hooks and things specific to that place that are compelling in and of mm -hmm. themselves. It's interesting to see one collision of all the supernatural stuff in the world of darkness meet with another collision of all the supernatural stuff and what happens when those two things themselves collide. 
there was occasionally a little bit of like reader whiplash because there's the what's his name old one eye who's like yeah he's pentex but he's just kind of like this this guy who's like yeah pentex and then the next character right up is i think the two twins who are hollow bags of skin filled with thousands of black widow spiders so to go from one to the other is yeah. a little like here's some random mage not very powerful not a big deal you know they only have irritate yeah. seven they have like yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like the one who lives in a bungalow on the beach doing like tarot yeah. cards for pocket money and she's like a dream speaker master you're like oh <laughs> yeah all right i did also like the um experiment four because it's one of my favorite kate bush songs. i was waiting for the so. kate bush reference yeah yeah <laughs> and if you haven't seen the video i saw the video very late at night by myself, and it was terrifying, but it has a very young Hugh Laurie. Uh, what brings us to the appendix? Does anyone have thoughts on the appendix? I, I thought we were going to get a system on Thysis. Yeah, I, 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 Thysis was a, uh, <laughs> a situation where it's like, it's it's another situation where White Wolf introduces me to a word I haven't heard of before. I go look it up, and then I get very confused as to how White Wolf's using the word. Yeah, yeah. it, uh, it basically <laughs> refers to a phenomenon whereby time seems to flow weirdly, where you can get a furious amount done in a short period of time, where suddenly you find that your acquaintances have been long dead. I would have liked a, a system for it. It talks about the importance of there being kind of turnover in that uh, who is in the carnival is going to to regularly change. Yeah, even or just more description. to I, I don't know how to fill in those gaps. That's one problem. Yeah. It's the kind of thing which I feel like should have been talked about earlier on when describing the mood of the book, rather than given like mm-hmm. its own capital letter term and yeah. separate section in a different chapter the previous chapter the way those characters are set up and just kind of set across as avatars in the world gives me an idea of a very stylized kind of game which i am not opposed to yeah. and then this ending section made it almost feel as if the circus was more magical realist than mm. anything yeah. well i mean it, it like throws it you were talking about oh this is one of the oldest mages i'm like well it talks right on the last page you know just throw away almost oh yeah everybody's basically immortal who's a member yeah. of the circus it's like <laughs> yeah. that would have been highlighted more early in the book yeah i could see why they waited because otherwise it reframes everything to go in knowing that all these characters are kind of immortal archetypes mm-hmm. and then you kind of have to explain that notion to it and again it pr- kind of pre-stylizes yeah. how it is and if some someone can exclude that fact and run it and it's perfectly fine but if they hear up front that these characters are essentially immortal i could see how that could change here's the thing that i have done that it doesn't say in the text but i've always taken it as subtext for this is that the carnival or the midnight circus also exists outside of time right it is not linear it is not kept within a linear structure Mm -hmm. right um it can move into the 1300s if you wanted to do so as if it was just in the 1980s to me that allows some of these weirdnesses of that to just mm-hmm. exist where it makes that make sense, right? It makes That's all how countries. they have elephants. Right. 2023, right. yeah. Exactly. You don't have to do that. It doesn't say yeah. it in the text, but that's just always been a subtextual thing that I've built to make it work for me in my head. Part of that liminality that the circus kind of embodies is anachronism and that, you know, opens up a whole bunch of possibilities. But I do, I do think structurally for the book, adding in the appendix was a bit weak like the way they did yeah the section on friendship i mean 
<laughs> so useful. The real circus is the friends you made along the way. Don't give me a header to tell me that sometimes people make friends with each other. Like, I know that. Yeah. And but... then the next one, which is only a bit longer, is going for the rules of immortality yeah. and how if yeah, you yeah. die, you come back. It, it really age. felt like at some point they told them the number of pages they had to work with yeah. and then they ripped off the delete key. I feel like it's like, oh, here's the notes that we had from each section that didn't get into the book. Let's just mm, paste it. Okay. Yeah. 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 It I, I, reads like that for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Or this is something the developer gave the writers who was like, oh, by the way, keep this in mind. But it's only two pages of confusion. So it's... Yeah, it's a weird little, it's in appendix for a reason, I think. But yeah. it is a weird little appendix, right? I also like the disappointed moon that is very clearly in the text. That looks like a moon that is disappointed that it was its birthday and it thought it got to pick what we were going to, ice cream they were going to have. But someone else's birthday yeah. was the same day and they had to they had to compromise. I, I, I was thinking for very awkward smell, but I think you're more right. Yeah. That one, <laughs> yeah, that's a, the, the stinky moon, the sigil of the, <laughs> the Midnight Circle. And the thing is, the moon, the idea of the lunar circus, right, is a theme, is a, is a term used throughout the book. If you're a werewolf person, and I am, Luna, having Luna involved in this circus seems almost obvious, right? And having Kara be connected to Luna seems like a very, like, easy, like, link them two together in some way. Maybe that uh, Kara is a an avatar of Luna of some form or another. There's a thing, you keep so much in this book that you can just go take a one step into your particular game line mm. to really like latch it to yeah. so many other things. Uh, does Luna have any dark incarnate? Not as written in any of the books that I've read. Okay. Cause so, I could, I, I would love to see this as the, the lost incarnate yeah. uh, of Luna. Well, I feeling like it fits even better. It feels almost more exalted Luna than werewolf Luna, but yep. Mm -hmm. Well, maybe the circus has been around long enough to be, in the universe where Exalted is the prehistory. I, I do yep. like the idea that the two connections we have are Autochthonia and the Midnight Circus. <laughs> oh my goodness. Yeah, I'm just gonna, I run, I'm going to run some other game that's not connected to World of Darkness and Northern and just still bring in the Midnight Circus. That would be... So it I does actually that. exist in the Infernals. Get that in yeah. Adversaries of the Righteous and it's shitty. <laughs> See my pain in the dice episode for more. <laughs> So let's go around, Robin, and, and just say final thoughts in the book, and then we'll wrap everything up. Uh, I'm going to start with Joshua. Do you want to give me Yeah, a... did not expect to like this book. I'm like, oh, it's crossover. I'll go through it. I have not read it before. I'd sort of heard about it. I'm going to be using this in my next World of Darkness Chronicle. Like, this is amazing. The Even the, like, like you're saying, like, I don't like story hooks. I probably wouldn't use that story hook, but if I was running in that air in New York, I might. Like, it's, there's little bits to fix. It is a 1996 White Wolf book. But of the 1996 White Wolf books, it's like right at the top. And, and I will, I absolutely love this book. So this to me shows the power of World of Darkness because I think it is one of the only games that could run it because it can go in so many directions that if this were powered yeah. by the apocalypse, you would have to pick a lane. If this were forged in the dark, you would have to pick a lane. If this were Paragon, you would have to pick a lane. And it doesn't. It can be very messy and yeah. move back and forth. This is also, this feels like the earliest precursor echo of the Chronicles of Darkness in the World of Darkness. Like, I look at this and, like, you can see where things like the Contagion Chronicles and stuff came from, like, from somehow. It does variations on themes very elegantly. There's a lot of directions it can go. If I had a criticism, it would be that if you were to take this 
in Toto. This is a town of 20,000 people, seemingly. <laughs> At that point, it's not a traveling circus so much as seemingly like a travel casino entertainment complex. But I mean, I don't think it was intended to be used yeah. necessarily in total. Yeah, it is big. Like, it feels like there's the X in Toronto or something. Like, it's that scale, not like taking over that parking lot outside the grocery store. Yeah. But at the same time, it could be the place that it's uh, powers to bend space or would allow it Mm -hmm. to do that. It's bigger on the inside, as it were. It is rich. It is well written. I never felt like I was being talked down to as a reader, which is something that can kind of creep in as a mage player. Since the developer voice in mage has always been so strong, I find it refreshing to just see how other people are doing it. And I think this was a great example. Yeah, I thought this was going to be kitsch. I thought this was going to be camp. It is yeah. none of that. This is the, the the most nuanced presentation of a circus I think I've ever yeah. seen. So one of one of you said, okay, this is Chaos Factor done right. And I'm like, yeah, I was expecting Chaos Factor part yes. two. Yeah, well, so following off of that, it's been a long time since I read Chaos Factor. But in terms of this book's suitability as a crossover title, something that kind of kept coming up as I was reading it is crossover. You know, there's there's always that point of reference. And they even say, you know, whatever game you're running, pick your point of reference. But the way a lot of the books that do crossover are written, it's very much one game or more than one game forced into another. And looking at it this way instead is that between the core game lines, you have this interstitial space and that's where this book lives. And it really owns that fact. It's not trying to be vampire and werewolf and mage and wraith and changeling simultaneously. It's being its own thing. And there are these ports of entry for the other games to come in. So I do like that. And I say that as someone who tends to balk at crossover in general. Um, Like I know we talked about blood and tides, several podcasts. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 The difference with blood and tides, blood and tides is like, here's how to use blood dim tides in your mage game. Here's how to use it in your vampire games. You're doing, changeling game this is this is a crossover book it's not just a book for the world of darkness and it doesn't feel like you're sacrificing any of your themes to do it you get additional themes even yeah ones that you generally might not get in some other games i do think it's just by the fact that this is how chris howard writes and the book only had a certain number of pages i do feel like there were a lot of things which could have used more detail that i would have liked to see explored more fully I would have loved to see a 20th anniversary update for this hint. And and all 400 pages of it would have been very helpful. Yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> no. Since this book came out, there are, I think, other media we could point to, other ideas about other story hooks we could point to. We had our TV Inspirations episode just recently. We recorded it, and we talked about the show Carnival as an inspiration for Changeling. And I think it fits even better as an inspiration for an updated Midnight Circus. Or if you have less self-respect, season four of Heroes. But There was a creepy, dark carnival thing in media zeitgeist, but it feels like if this is connected to it, it had to have started it. Like it was before that started. I mean, they, they reference Freaks, which is the 1930s. So there's, you know, there's a history to it. Or at least the revival or whatever. Yeah. Batman Forever. I was thinking, I was thinking <laughs> that was roughly like the same time. <laughs> so. Rob Zombie or, yeah. Oh, like, yeah, that's uh, true. Some of the other, I like, uh, Kiss, Psycho Circus, or all sorts of... Alice Cooper. Carnival, like you said, yeah. Josh, what did you think? Well, uh, pretty much anywhere at some point or another, I've gushed about The Midnight Circus being my favorite World of Darkness book, and it is. And it is because, uh, as you guys all said, it is it intelligently weaves in all of the elements of the World of Darkness in a way 
that allows you to really dive deeply into the themes and echoes and internal struggles that the world of darkness often is trying to get you to, is trying to present to you. And it does so in a way that act that 100% work. Yes, as we've mentioned here and there, there are bits and pieces that I would adjust and change, some language that I would uh, probably not use in here. It never belittles the characters. It never belittles the real world reflections of human beings who lived in these spaces. It doesn't take carnies or any of the people that uh, would be associated with a circus and treat them poorly without being a reflection of how those places often did treat those people, right? And I like that it treats the material respectfully, but then does not shy away from saying, this is an evil carnival, right? Not every circus is like this, but every circus has echoes of these things. And I think it gives you a good entryway into really incorporating that into the game in a way that I, I think would be really powerful for people to use. I've used it constantly. I've used it in games that are not World of Darkness, right? And is a regular theme for me because uh, it does all the things that it sets out to do really well. So I would recommend, and I keep recommending it to people, and people keep having the reactions that Joshua and Terry had, like, oh, that's it's going to be kitsch. It's going to be something that I don't think does crossover well. But it does, because as Puka mentioned, it pulls you out of the world of darkness and says, here's a different set piece. It exists in the world of darkness, but it is its own thing, and it allows you to have multiple pathways into the circus to experience it, maybe fight against it, and leave, or be trapped forever in the circus and uh, gleefully enjoy devouring all of your player characters, which is a thing you can do. So... Those are my overall feelings, which brings us to the end, the end of this show. In the meantime, if you find yourself out there in the world of darkness, ensure that you keep your arms tightly wrapped around it. In the Deadpool of Changeling Carney-related ideas that could be worked into the unique dastardliness of the Midnight Circus, we've dredged up a few more that could make an appearance in your game. These include the Calliope of Poison Skies, a goblin-built steam organ that produces foul and foreboding weather, cursed funnel cakes that enchant the unsuspecting consumer, and flying monkey chimera kept in a golden cage until they need to be released into the crowds, where they pick pockets, tuzzle hair, and occasionally devour unsuspecting toddlers separated from their parents. Said idea pit is available for dredging thanks to the support of you, the listeners, and in particular our patrons, Derek, Dorkadus, Oreo, Roscaboos, Sandjigger, Seja, Terry Robinson, and Tri Sarabeth. If you'd like to get a shout out at the end of each episode, please consider signing up for our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash changelingthepodcast. We also appreciate reviews left on your favorite podcast listening platform. And please feel free to tell your friends and marks about our show. Thanks for listening, and until the circus rolls back through town, keep on dreaming.